Well, yeah, did you hear the familiar part there? Anybody between those two passages? The stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Must have been an amazing moment for the disciples, for Peter and John. Remember the story from last week. We read all of Acts chapter 4, just about, verses 1 to uh, 31. And uh, Peter and John had healed a man who was crippled from birth. And now he was over 40 years old. He'd been crippled for all of his life. They healed him in the name of Jesus. They got hauled in front of the uh, Jewish leadership who said, What do you think you're doing? And then they said to these people, in answer to their accusation, in answer to their questions, that the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They were quoting uh, Psalm 80 back there. And as they were doing so, they were saying that uh, something we are seeing fulfilled right before our eyes, God's promises from the past. They spoke of, uh, this is our father David had, had written this down. The stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And if we, we read some context from the psalm there, so we'd have an idea of exactly uh, what it was that the religious leaders would have heard from Peter and John as they quote this passage. Because, see, these were people who were well-versed in the Scriptures. They knew not just the words that John and Peter were saying, but they knew the context that it belonged in. And here, in, uh, in this psalm, there was a king who is threatening to be overwhelmed by the stuff that was happening around him. And God says, I will take care of you. You are the stone that everyone thinks they can just toss away, but I'm going to make you the cornerstone through which I'm going to build the people of Israel. I will give you victory. And the apostles are saying that, hey, this this passage, yeah, it was fulfilled back when it was written, but it really pointed to a greater fulfillment. And we see the New Testament does that all the time. It says, remember that thing that happened a long time ago? One of the, the clearest ones, to my mind at least, is that uh, in Matthew, in the beginning of his gospel, he says that Jesus and his family, when he was still a baby, had to flee down to Egypt, right? Because Herod was about to kill all of the children because he'd heard a rival king had been born. And then Matthew says, you know, after a time they returned. And this was to fulfill what the scriptures say, out of Egypt I called my son. Can anyone tell me where that scripture comes from? Out of Egypt I called my son? It's, it's not in there. Not really. See, it, and it certainly wasn't about the Messiah. It wasn't about Jesus. It instead was saying, remember the story of Israel. That whole story is going to be retold in Jesus and fulfilled in the way God always intended it to be. Remember when we celebrate communion together, do you remember what meal Jesus adapted to give us the communion meal? The Passover meal, right? This is the great moment of rescue in the Old Testament. For the rest, even today, Jews look back on that Passover, which celebrates how God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And he did it so quickly that there wasn't even time to wait for the bread to rise. So they use unleavened bread, bread without yeast, for that meal. And Jesus says, remember that great rescue? It was only pointing forward to the rescue that I'm going to give you 
from sin and death. Yes, you were slaves in Egypt, and that was rough. But you don't understand that you're really slaves to sin, and that kills you. You can live as slaves in Egypt, but you will die as slaves to sin. Constantly recapitulating the story is what we find the New Testament says about Jesus. But maybe I think this passage is a little bit opaque to us. And as I told you last week, I think that this is so profound that Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, but God has chosen to be the cornerstone. That I wanted to spend a second week here just talking about what that means. What does it mean that Jesus is the cornerstone? Well, let me tell you a little bit about a cornerstone, first of all. Now, in the first century, building practices were a little bit different than they are today. The materials were different. The technology was different. I know nothing about building today. I know very little about building back then, mostly well, only what I've read in, in books. But let me tell you what the purpose of the cornerstone was. See, the cornerstone is the first stone that you laid in your building project. And when you laid that stone, you were making a statement about what that entire building was going to look like. Because first of all, that stone and every other stone on the very bottom would have to support the entire weight of the structure, which means that the cornerstone determined the size of the building that you were making. The cornerstone determined the place. It said, this building is going to belong here, and it's going to move in these directions, Right? It's the cornerstone. And then the cornerstone also said, this is where the building is going to be oriented toward. That's significant too. I mean, think about this in a couple of different ways. When you decide which way your building is going to be oriented, you're saying this is where the entrance is going to be and the, the exit is going to be. This is the view that we're going to have. From where we are, these are maybe very 21st century sorts of considerations. I don't know how often in the first century they thought, but does it have a view? Right? <laughs> but it also determined things like, was it facing toward the sun or away from the sun? Was it facing toward the market? Was it facing, did it have a spiritual significance and was facing maybe toward uh, the east? You know, people always used to be buried facing east, Right? Because that's where we anticipate Jesus is returning. And when he comes back, we want to see him as we rise. The cornerstone determines the shape, the size, the orientation, the direction of the building. In a sense, the entire building is contained in that cornerstone. And every stone in the building will be laid in consideration of that cornerstone as well. All the stones next to it, all the stones on top of it, all of them, in a sense, touch the cornerstone. Now, in the story that they're telling, the stone you builders rejected, here's the idea. You've got these, these religious leaders of the Jews, right? The, the Sanhedrin, which consisted of certainly some of the Sadducees, some of the, the priests and the scribes, maybe even some of the Pharisees were part of the Sanhedrin. And they were responsible for the project of leading Israel, determining its size and shape and orientation. 
And as they were saying, this is the kind of Israel that we want to have. And don't get me wrong, they weren't just inventing it out of thin air. Right? They were looking at, at the scripture and they were looking at, well, what, what do we think is best for the people? You know, what's, what's good in our world? What will happen? You know, what will Rome think if we do X, Y, or Z? They had all these considerations that, that they were taking into account. And as they're putting this, this metaphorical building together, what will the people of Israel be like? How will we live today together? How will we live in light of what's going on in the world? They came to Jesus and they said, he doesn't fit into what we're making. He doesn't fit. And, of course, that makes sense of what happens next, doesn't it? And as a matter of fact, as, as Peter goes on with his sermon, actually just before this, uh, before he says the stone you builders rejected has become the cornerstone, he says, then know this, you and all the people uh, of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, that, but God raised from the dead that this man stands before you healed. No wonder you don't understand why this happened. Because it happened by Jesus, and you rejected Jesus. You said he has no place in the world that you are building. But that's not God's evaluation of the circumstances. That's not God's evaluation of Jesus. But before we get too much into that, let, let me just focus again. What were the religious leaders building? I know that... Uh, because we're Christians sitting in church on a Sunday morning, yeah, we know, man, they really messed up, right? We're probably thinking the first thing that comes to mind is those dummies. They rejected Jesus. They're in trouble now, right? Because we, we, know, we know the story. We know the outcome. We know what comes next. We know Jesus is coming back. But I think that we need to step back from that perspective for a moment. See, I am convinced that God puts people in the Bible. He tells their stories, not so we will look at them and say, wow, they were dumb. But so we'll look at them and say, I am tempted to be that way too. He gives us the Pharisees, not so we'll look and say, Who, what people out there are like the Pharisees today? those idiots. But so we'll say, I know that God tells me about the Pharisees because it is so easy for me to become like the Pharisees. What if we really believed that in the way we approach the Bible? I'm convinced that we would be a lot more humble in the way that we deal with the people that we meet every single day. Because what do we do with the people that we meet or that we hear about every single day? What an idiot right? That person's so mean. Why are they that way? It's easy to judge other people. We don't call it judging, right? We're like, well, I'm just telling the truth, right? I'm just telling the truth. That's just how it is. You know, don't look at me. It's not my fault. If only those fools would fix their lives. See, I think we do that same thing, but God intends for us not to see the ways that people are dumb, but to see how the ways that other people's lives reveal what's in my own heart as well. So what building were the Pharisees building? Or not the, I'm sorry, I'm used to being in the Gospels, right? Those Pharisees. So no, I, what building were the Jewish leaders building? 
I think they wanted some really good things. Maybe they want, I think they also wanted some things that we ought to know better than to want. I think they wanted power for themselves. But sometimes when we want power, do you ever stop and think, man, if only I was in charge of that, things would go better? Do you think that, the, that maybe the religious leaders here had that same thought sometimes? I'm in charge, and I'll do it better than those jokers over there, so I need to keep hold of this power that I've got. Do you think that maybe, and I'm sure of this, that some of the, one of the considerations these religious leaders were taking into account is, you know, if, if we just let Jesus run the show here, he's going to take us to places we don't want to go. Do you remember some of the things that Jesus said? Let's take the Sermon on the Mount. He said, if someone forces you to go with them one mile, go with them two. Do you know what he was referring to? He was saying the law allows a Roman soldier to make you carry his gear for one mile. Now, the Roman soldiers are not like, you know, it's not like going down uh, to Oceanside next to Camp Pendleton and saying, you know, the, the Marine base is Pendleton. And, you know, when I see the Marines, I want to thank them for their service. And I, I want to help them out. You know, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll be extra friendly or nice to them or I'll serve them in some way. You know, maybe the churches around Camp Pendleton have ministries to Pendleton where they're trying to, to care for those soldiers there. Maybe that, I had imagined that's probably the case. But the Romans weren't those kind of soldiers to the people who lived in Israel. The Romans were the occupying army. It would be a little bit like saying to a Ukrainian, when the Russian comes to your town, I want you to invite him in for dinner. Now do we get why people may not have liked some of what Jesus said? If the soldier forces you to go one mile with him, go two. And the religious leaders are probably saying, if we do that, that can destroy our nation. And that'll set back our own independence. And we want to protect that. Can, can we identify with that at all? Can we say, okay, yeah, maybe I'm a little bit like the religious leaders here. Sometimes I think that I know how to run the world a little bit better than Jesus does. In theory, we, we know, you know, in the abstract, we know that's not true. Jesus is, is God. He knows what he's doing. But when it comes to living our own lives, we find places where we say, you know what, Jesus, I don't like what you're going to do with that, so I'm going to keep it for myself. I'm going to build on a cornerstone other than you. Because remember, all of the stones in the building rely on that cornerstone. But there are places where we say, I don't want Jesus to be in charge of that. I don't want him to guide me there. See, the question we ought to come to out of this part of the sermon is, is what is it that we're actually trying to build in our lives and as a church? And can we confidently say that Jesus is the cornerstone of that project? Maybe we're thinking, I want to live my life for my family. That's a good thing, isn't it? 
Family is a good thing. God gives us family. When he tells us about what our relationship with him is like, he says it's like a family relationship. I'm making you my children. And so maybe we start to think everything that I do, family will become the cornerstone in my life. And everything I do will be about serving my family, loving my family, providing for my family. And it sounds good, doesn't it? But I'm telling you, if we make family the cornerstone of our lives, we will not build a building like what Jesus wants to make out of us. Do you remember some of the things Jesus had to say about family? Uh, there was a time where someone came, you know, Jesus was teaching a big crowd, and somebody said, Teacher, your, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus said, Who are my mothers and my brothers and my sisters? Whoever does the will of God. He says, Okay, earthly family, it's not that it's not important, it's just that it's not everything. My obedience to God matters more. There's another time when somebody, you know, Jesus said, uh, I tell you the truth, unless you hate your mother and your father and your brothers and your sisters, you can't have any part of me. Now, Jesus was using hyperbole, right? He wasn't saying holy people hate their family. He was saying you think family is the most important thing that's out there, and it's not. And if you follow me, there will be times where your family will not understand. And it'll be like you hate them. Won't be true, but it'll feel like it. See, if we decide to build on the cornerstone of family, we'll build a house other than what God is building. We'll have the wrong shape, the wrong orientation. Because what happens when we make family the most important thing? There's a great scene in C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce where a, uh, a woman appears in heaven and uh, a, someone who lives in heaven comes to reason with her and invite her in and say, please, come and be part of heaven. And she says, well, is my son here? They say, yes, he is. She says, well, I would have thought he would have come down to invite me into heaven. I loved him so much. I still love him so much. I, I organized my whole life around him. And they say, he can't come see you now. Because you belonging in heaven is not about how much you love your son, but about how much you love Jesus. As a matter of fact, I want you to think about what it was like for the rest of your family when you made your son the most important thing. In this story, the woman's son had died young. And because her son was her cornerstone, she kept his room just as it had been. And she lived the rest of her life mourning. And her relationships with the rest of her family suffered. Her other children said, you don't love me the way you love your son who's gone. And her husband could never get close to her. And she didn't live with any joy or hope the rest of her life. See, when we make things our cornerstone that aren't actually Jesus, the rest of our life starts to fall apart and get bent out of shape. We could be in the right shape on so many different things. We can be in the right shape on family and yet in the wrong shape on everything else. That's what happens when we make something that's just one part of our life the cornerstone. What if we make being good our cornerstone? Not sinning and always doing the right thing. What if we make that our cornerstone? How much mercy 
and kindness will we show to other people. I heard a story last night as we were driving home from the zoo. We were listening to one of Tim Keller's sermons, and he, he talked about uh, a man who is not a Christian, and he said he had, he had his mom and his dad, and his mom was perfect and went to church every day and cared for the needy and did every good thing, never messed up. He said his dad was an alcoholic who was constantly in and out of, of rehab and getting his life straightened out and sober. He said his, his mom went to this one church full of perfect people and his dad went to a Salvation Army church with terrible music, no organization, and a bunch of people that you probably wouldn't say, ooh, let's go hang out with them. He said, if I were to ever approach the God of either my mom or my dad, it'd be my dad every time because my mom was like a snowflake. He said she was perfectly symmetrical. Right? She had her life in order. And she was beautiful and she was cold. Because being good was her cornerstone, was the most important thing. And it bent the rest of her life out of shape. So I go to my dad's church every time. The religious leaders had the wrong cornerstone, and so their building took on the wrong shape. And we are in danger of the same thing. If Jesus is not our cornerstone, we won't build the things that God has in mind. One last example before we move on. Uh, you know, when you think about being a pastor in the abstract, you think about reaching your community, and you kind of make a plan. And you say, who is it? Who are the people that we really need to reach, first of all? You say, well, you know, Lemon Cove kind of throws all of this out of my calculation because we don't have all of these things. I was coming from the city, you see. But thought, well, you, you want to go to the influential people, right? You want to find, like, the mayor and, and the city council, and you want to go to the school board, and, and, and you know, you want to reach, like, the, the people who are well-connected and the people who are successful. Because if we reach those people, like, look at the, the reach into the community that we'll have. Look at the influence over the community that we'll have. Doesn't that make sense? Or am, am I the idiot, right? Isn't that the way we would normally think of this? When I came here and I started doing ministry, now, of course, the first thing to recognize is we don't have, like, any of those things. But the more important consideration is I started, you know, talking to people about Jesus, and the thing that I encountered is that the influential and the, the, the powerful and the, the wealthy and whoever else aren't very interested in hearing about Jesus, but the people who live on the margins of society and desperately would love to be invited in are ready to be picked. They are ready to hear about Jesus. You know, what, what if instead of making all of our plans about who we should reach in order to be effective for God, we started asking, who is it that God is showing us is ready to hear? Why don't we start with them? Why don't we build on the cornerstone that God's put, God puts in front of us, which is Jesus Christ. Who did Jesus go visit? Remember? At one point, the religious leader said, what's wrong with you? You are constantly feasting with the tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus uh, says, well, it's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. He actually was confronted with this several times. And in one case, he responded that way. It's not the healthy you need a doctor, but the sick. But what he was really saying is the people who are healthy, the people who think that they are healthy, 
You can't give medicine because they don't think they need it. But the people who know they are sick will start taking their medicine. If we reject Jesus as the cornerstone, just like the religious leaders, we will build something other than what God intended. But what happens if we receive Jesus as the cornerstone? Well, it means that we'll start cooperating with God's purposes to repair the world, just like we're saying. Who are the people who are ready to hear? Why don't we talk to them and build the building that God designs, that God intends, instead of what we think makes the most sense? You know, the early church, when Paul speaks to them in, in uh, his letters to the Corinthians, he, he says to them, think about who and what you were when you met Jesus. I'm paraphrasing a bit. He says, uh, not many of you were wealthy or influential, but you were mostly poor and foolish. Now, that's not very fun for us to hear. Like, did God choose me because I'm poor and foolish? But, but here is what Paul says. Do you know why he did that? Do you know why he chose you when you were poor and foolish? It's because God wants to shame the wise things of the world and reveal them for what they truly are. We think we've got it all figured out, don't we? I mean, didn't we think that, you know, oh, the Cold War is over, and then, like, Russia invades Ukraine 30 years after the fall of the Berlin Wall, and we realize we're sort of back to square one. We thought we had it all figured out, but we didn't. You know, we, we were living in this wonderful world of, of vaccines and medication and all of this stuff, and then COVID comes along, and we realize, oh, we're not in control of that world at all, are we? It just totally messes us up. See, but if we say, okay, Jesus is the stone on which we're going to build, we're going to pay attention to what he's doing, and we're going to follow that, then we will cooperate with God's purposes to repair the world, which aren't to set up. I mean, I am not criticizing the political structures that we've got set up because God gave them to us. Okay? There are places where maybe they're worthy of criticism. That's not my purpose this morning. Romans 13 says that you know, uh, God actually instituted the ruling authorities and he gave them the sword to restrain evil in our world. The fact that we have a government means that things aren't as bad as they could be. They restrain evil. But God's purpose to repair the world isn't that we would have the right president, isn't that we would have the right social structures, but is that Jesus is coming back to rule as king. That's a cornerstone sort of thing, isn't it? But something else happens if we receive Jesus as the cornerstone. It's not just that we know what to do, which is whatever Jesus did and does, cooperating with his work, but it gives us a new sort of confidence to live in this world. There is this, <coughs> excuse me, there's this hymn, we've sung it a few times, I know whom I have believed. We actually sing it a little bit differently, right? To make it fit with the, the, the tune and, and the rhythm. I know whom I have believed. Right? I like saying believe it instead. It's fun. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed unto him until that day. Get it? I know the one that I've put my trust in. I know the cornerstone. And because I know that, I know him, I know the kind of person he is, I know what he's done, I know I can give him all of my life and he will keep it just as it needs to be until he comes back and he makes it all right. 
And he makes me all right in every respect, right? All right, like, how are you feeling? Well, I'm feeling all right. He's going to make us all right. And not just that, but are you doing everything right? I'm doing it all right in every sense. If Jesus is the cornerstone, then we have confidence to live in this life. Why? Why? How is it that we know we can trust Jesus with this? Well, because he rose from the dead for crying out loud. That's what the disciples say to the religious leaders. That's what they say repeatedly. We know that we can trust Jesus. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, they say in verse 10. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth this man has been healed. He is the one that you crucified. You passed your sentence on him. But then what happened? God raised him from the dead. What does that say about who Jesus is? You said, no, he's no good. God says, no, I'm pretty sure he's good. I'm going to raise him from the dead. It means God chose him. It means you can't throw him away. And just how much does it mean that the way God signified, no, Jesus is the guy, is by raising him from the dead. Folks, is there anyone who survives death in this life? We all know that we will pay taxes and that we're going to die. That's the truth. If there are non-negotiables in life, those are them. Death and taxes. But they are not non-negotiable in Jesus' life. By the way, did you know that Jesus said something about paying taxes too? About the certainty in life? Remember, uh, uh, some of the religious leaders came to Peter and said, Hey, do you guys pay the temple tax? And Peter's, of course we pay the temple tax. What kind of monsters do you think we are? Then he goes to Jesus. He's like, dude, did we pay the temple tax? And Jesus says, you know, I own the temple. I'm the son of God. I don't have to pay the temple tax, but so that we won't offend anyone, go fishing, right? That's Peter's job. He says, go fishing, and then the fish that you catch, you'll find a coin in its mouth enough to pay the tax for you and for me. Yeah, Jesus deals with all of the certainties of life. He deals with death and even he deals with taxes. He pays them. We should pay him too. Building on the cornerstone. But what could God do that would be more spectacular than saying, this is the one you should listen to. Let me raise him from the dead. Let me undo the great certainty of life through him. You think when the, when the religious leaders are threatening the apostles. What kind of attitude? How do you think the apostles felt? I mean, you know, if it was me, I'd probably be there like, oh man, I really hope everything's going to be okay. But the apostles just weeks before had seen the resurrected Jesus. They're like, are you kidding me? Who do you think you are? We know the resurrected Jesus. We're not intimidated or frightened by any of your threats. And they did threaten them. We're not worried about that at all. How can we have confidence that Jesus is the cornerstone? By trusting in his resurrection. Now, you and I, we weren't there, were we? I assume we weren't there. Maybe George was there, but the rest of us were not there. We didn't actually see with our eyes the resurrected Jesus. Elaine, as we were going through the liturgy earlier this morning, she says we can't perceive Jesus with our five senses, can we? Touch, taste, smell, sight, hearing. 
That's not how we relate to Jesus today. So how can we have confidence in the resurrection? So first of all, we can do this by really studying the evidence. There is evidence available to us. Let me give you a few pieces. You've heard some of these before, at least. First of all, when Jesus appears, he makes his first resurrection appearance. Do you remember who he appeared to? It's the women in the garden. Remember that? Uh, this is something that you can't make up, and here's why. In the first century, women's testimony was considered so unreliable. This is not, the mod- this is not what I think. This is the first century perspective. Women's testimony was considered so unreliable that they couldn't serve as a witness in a court. And yet, the Gospels tell us that the first witnesses were women. See, if you were making this story up, you would never, ever do that. Do it that way. The best explanation is, well, that's just how it happened. No one would have, would have made it up that way, so it must have just happened that way. That's one piece of evidence. Here's the other, another piece of evidence. There's the Jewish polemic. Right? Remember when uh, 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 the, the tomb was empty, the soldiers in Matthew chapter 28, verses 11 to 15, they go to the religious leaders, and they say, we have a problem. Jesus is gone. His body is, is gone. I don't know how much, it doesn't say how much detail they gave him, like we saw the angel, and we're pretty sure he rose from the dead. We're not sure. But what did the, what did the Jewish leaders do? They said, here's some money, and we'll intercede with Pilate and, and save you, but tell everyone that the disciples stole the body. So what does that mean? It means that the earliest opponents of the resurrection agreed that the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And a bunch of bozos, like the early disciples, God bless them, would never have been able to get through the Roman soldiers to empty that tomb. The tomb was empty. Here's uh, the next. You have the recklessness of Christians in the face of death. I think we've lost some of this because you know, as far as the cornerstone goes, we, we, we don't always look to the resurrection But in the early church, they did. And this is uh, what Rodney Stark, a sociologist uh, from Baylor, writes. He says, In the year 165, during the reign of Marcus Aurelius, a devastating epidemic swept through the Roman Empire. Some medical historians suspect this was the first appearance of smallpox in the West. But whatever the actual disease, it was lethal, as many contagious diseases are when they strike a previously unexposed population. During the 15-year duration of the epidemic, a quarter to a third of the population probably died. At the height of the epidemic, mortality was so great in many cities that the emperor Marcus Aurelius, who subsequently died of the disease, wrote of caravans of carts and wagons hauling out the dead. It was just like in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. Then a century later came another great plague. Once again, the Greco-Roman world trembled as on all sides, family, friends, and neighbors died horribly. and No one knew how to treat the stricken, and most people didn't even try. During the first plague, the famous classical physician Galen fled Rome for his country estate, where he stayed until the danger subsided. There's nothing anyone can do. The only thing we can do is run away. But for those who could not flee because they were too poor, The typical response was to try to avoid any contact with the afflicted since it was understood that the disease was contagious. 
Hence, when their first symptoms appeared, victims often were thrown into the streets where the dead and dying lay in piles. In a pastoral letter written during the second epidemic, around 251, Bishop Dionysus described events in Alexandria. At the first onset of the disease, they, the non-Christians, pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads uh, before they were dead and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avoid the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. This was the rational and reasonable thing to do. Abandon the sick because they're going to die, and if you don't abandon them, they will take you with them. As for action, Christians met the obligation to care for the sick rather than desert them, and thereby saved enormous numbers of lives. What went on during the epidemics was only an intensification of what went on every day among Christians. Indeed, the impact of Christian mercy was so evident that in the 4th century when the Emperor Julian attempted to restore paganism, he exhorted the pagan priesthood to compete with the Christian churches or Christian charities. In a letter to the high priest of Galatia, Julian urged the distribution of grain and wine to the poor, noting that the impious Galileans, his mean name for Christians, in addition to their own, support ours, and it is shameful that the poor should be wanting our aid. What enabled the Christians when everyone else was running away and throwing their dead out, or not throwing their dead, throwing their living sick into the streets? Why did they behave differently? Because they were convinced that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and defeated death himself so that they no longer had to fear it. Uh, one other example of that, the Bishop Polycarp in the first century, uh, some of the earliest non-biblical Christian writings that we have are from Polycarp. And on his way, uh, he was captured by the Romans. He was sentenced to death. He was going to be sentenced to death. And as he was being transported to Rome, he wrote to all of the churches along the way, please do not make any attempt to interfere for I'm going to die the death that my Lord Jesus died. Now, I'm not saying that what we should do is try to die the way Jesus did. But at the very least, the early Christians were so convinced of the resurrection that they were willing to die as Jesus did. Because he was their cornerstone. First, if we want to know, how do we trust that Jesus is our cornerstone? We remember that he rose from the dead, and we can look at the evidence for it. That's not all of it, by the way. Just a few things for us this morning. Second, we can be convinced of the resurrection by the witness of the Holy Spirit. The proof is revealed to us spiritually. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, here's what we see. Oops. <clears throat> chapter 2, verse 12. What we have received in the Holy Spirit is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God. Why? So that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, 
but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgment about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord to instruct him? See, the Holy Spirit is actually, we can give people all of this evidence, right? We can say, you know, the, the women, that, that shows that this is probably a true story. You know, the empty tomb, where did he go? We can say that the Christians weren't afraid of death. Why not? But it's only by the Holy Spirit that we say, you're right, Jesus must have risen from the dead. If you're wondering what the difference is between you who believe and your neighbor who does not believe, it's that the Holy Spirit has taught you these things in your heart. And how will that change how you minister to your neighbor next door? Instead of arguing with them, instead of packing all the truths together into the brick and waiting until you can hit them with it repeatedly, you will say, the Holy Spirit has to reveal these things. Holy Spirit, reveal this to my son, my daughter, my parents, my neighbor. Lord God, unless you convince them, they will never believe. Because unless you convinced me, I never would have believed. We know because of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, maybe here's what's happened. You're saying, you know, I think I believe this stuff. Well, that's the work of the Holy Spirit in you. What do you do next? Well, you get baptized. Why? Why? Romans 6. Don't you know, this is verse 3. Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. So you're saying baptism isn't just an outward sign of an inward change. God bless the the folks, uh, the Christians who say that and who believe that. But there is more to the story. Baptism is the work of God that vitally connects his people to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ so that we start building on the cornerstone of the resurrection of the resurrected Lord. Baptism is the way we grab on to what the Spirit has started to teach us and find that not only do I think it's true, but now I am experiencing that it's true. Now, baptism is not, it doesn't save us. It's faith in Jesus Christ that makes us acceptable to God. But baptism is the means by which God confers so many of his good blessings and promises on us. See, that's why we can baptize babies here, or one of the reasons at least, because we're convinced it's not primarily about what I do in choosing to be baptized, but primarily about what God does in our baptism. And if you're wondering, when we, when we baptize babies here, we expect that at some point we will complete that baptism with that young person or whatever age they are confessing their faith before God's people and saying the work that God began in me through this community and through baptism and through the Holy Spirit is being finished today in my confession that all of that belongs to me through faith in Jesus Christ. So, one last application, and I'll wrap it up, because I'm way late. But when I read this passage, here is what I thought. I thought I am so tired of feeling like I have to constantly be proving myself and proving the things I believe. 
You ever feel that way? Someone says something and, and you start questioning. Well, is, is, you know, that's a good question. Have I been mistaken this whole time about the things that I believe and the things that I trust in? If someone says, Jesus didn't rise from the dead and here's why. Or somebody says, you know, uh, one of the things for me is I look out and I see people, people seem to be better than me, right? And I'm like, well, I've got the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't I be better than them? This, by the way, is not the math problem that God wants us to do. <laughs> but when I start to doubt, I feel like I have to convince myself all over again. Does anyone else feel that way? I have to convince myself all over again of all of these things. And that's because really what we're trusting in is a set of beliefs and not the person who rose again. That's what the disciples were doing in front of of the religious leaders. I think the disciples, in a sense, were thinking, I don't have answers to all of your questions. You might even know the law better than I do. You might know the, the scriptures better than I do. You might be smarter than I am. But I have met Jesus Christ, and he rose from the dead, and nothing will ever change that fact. And the way I'm going to see the world is through Jesus and his resurrection, not through my own doubts or concerns or even my own intelligence, because that's what it boils down to at the end. Right? If we're thinking, you know, uh, I have to always doubt whether or not Jesus really was and really did these things, even though I have that experience of him in my heart, if I have to always doubt those things just in case they're not true, well, what we're really saying is the smartest person wins. The person who knows how to handle the evidence best wins. And does that sound like the church that God had described, that Paul was speaking to? God chose the weak and the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Not the wise things of the world to shame the foolish. It changes the way I feel assured about my faith because I'm trusting in the person of Jesus who I have met and who reveals himself to me, not always as often as I wish, but as often as I need, who provides the cornerstone for the life that I'm building that touches on and impacts everything that I am. I can trust in a person where an idea might fail me.